Well, we return to our study of Leviticus this morning. Leviticus chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 13 this morning. Leviticus chapter 6, beginning with verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law for the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning. And the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. The priest is to put on his linen robe, and he shall put on undergarments next to his flesh, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. But the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up smoke, offer up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. Father, help us to profit from your word this morning. Amen. As we have been studying the book of Leviticus, we've been seeing the various offerings from the standpoint of the one who is bringing those offerings. This is what we've been seeing in the first five chapters, a little bit more than that, up to verse 7 of chapter 6. The commands that we have seen in that first section of Leviticus are given to the people of God, to the children of Israel. Now, as we come to chapter 6, verse 8, the focus begins to shift. From this point on, we'll be looking at these five great sacrifices from the perspective, not of the people, but from the perspective of the Levitical priests. Just as we learned important spiritual principles from the commands that were given to the worshipers in Israel, who were to bring the offerings, and from the symbolism of the offerings themselves, so there are important things for us to learn as we examine these offerings from the perspectives of those who mediate the offerings, that is, the priests. In this passage that is before us this morning, God tells us something about his law. He tells us something about consecration. He tells us something about the importance of godliness and holiness and communion with the Lord. And most importantly, God tells us something about the way in which we are able to come before him in order to commune with him. 
And that is, of course, atonement. So I want to look at these things with you this morning. And the first thing I want you to see is what this passage tells us about God's law in terms of its instructive purpose. Look at the very first words there in verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law. The very phraseology that is being used here in verses 8 and 9 indicate that Moses is entering into a new section of this book. He uses this language elsewhere to indicate the transition into a new portion of the book of Leviticus. We'll see that as we work our way through the book. And here we are told that Aaron and his sons are commanded by Moses. Now it's really God's command. God is using Moses as the intermediary. He's passing on the commands of God through Moses to Aaron and his sons, and what follows are commands regarding the same sacrifices that we've already been learning about. So we're going back and we're covering some of the same ground, but from a different perspective. If you're with us on Wednesday nights in our study of Revelation, then this will be familiar to you. Because what we're seeing in the book of Revelation, as we've been saying over and over and over until I'm sure many of you are sick of hearing it, Revelation is cyclical, not linear. And so that means it doesn't start at one point and end at another point. It's covering the same period of time over and over again from different perspectives, giving us different information. And that's what's happening here. We're going to be going back to deal with the same, <clears throat> excuse me, the same sacrifices which have already been described for us, but looking at them from a different perspective. This time, as we've already said, the instruction is not for the people at large, but for the priests. They are being instructed in regard to the rituals of sacrificial worship. So when the Lord tells Moses to pass on these instructions concerning the law, what follows is not a condensed civil code or an elaborate penal code, but in fact, ritual instruction. And that tells us something about the word that is used here, law. When law is spoken of in the first five books of the Bible, it means something broader than what first comes to our minds in regard to the English usage of the word law. Here, it means instruction. God has a positive, didactic teaching purpose for his law. So when God speaks of Torah, law, in the Old Testament... And especially here in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, he means something that has a positive teaching function, not just a legal code. In this case, we have what is essentially a manual 
for sacrificial procedure by the priesthood in regard to the worship of the nation. But even here, God's purpose is not merely to lay out the details of the ritual instruction which the priests are to follow, but also to provide instruction in regard to the truth that underlies the symbolism of the sacrifices. Now we know very well, being New Covenant Christians, with the entire New Testament to guide us, particularly the book of Hebrews, we know very well that there is symbolism underlying all of these sacrifices. Under all of these sacrifices is, at root, Jesus. The purpose, then, of these sacrifices and the purpose of the priestly function in regard to the sacrifices is to provide for us a lesson. It is to teach. It is to instruct. This is important for us to understand. We're often tempted to view the law only in negative terms. To view it as simply a code of condemnation. We read certain New Testament passages, and we tend to think in terms of contrast. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And of course, there is a proper contrast between the law and gospel. That is one of the glorious truths of the New Testament. But when we only view the law in those terms, when we only view the law as negative, we miss something of the beauty of the law given in its original context. And this passage illustrates the wider, more positive Hebrew usage of the law. When we join with the psalmist in asking the Lord to allow us to behold wonderful things from his law, We're not speaking of of statutory codes only. We're speaking about the whole of his word, which is a word of instruction. So law is used in a very broad sense. We need to understand that. We need to understand that the law is not negative. The law is wonderful. The law is beautiful. The law accomplishes good. Even the purpose for which God has sent the law is a law of wonder. One of the things that the law does, Paul says, is to function as a tutor to lead us to Christ. There's that instruction again. What does the law teach us? The law teaches us that we are sinners. Now that may not sound very beautiful on its face, but it most certainly is. The result of understanding that we are sinners is that we move on to search for and find the solution to that problem which is found in Jesus Christ 
the law leads us to Jesus by showing us the ugliness of our sin. And in that purpose, it is itself beautiful. Now, I want you to look also with me at verses 10 through 11, because here we see another thing that we don't want to miss. Here is the command for proper priestly dress. The priests are told what they are to wear when they are in the service of the sanctuary and what they are not to wear when they take the ashes from the burnt offering outside the camp to deposit them in the designated place. Listen again to verses 10 and 11. The priest is to put on his linen robe, and he shall put on undergarments next to his flesh, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Now, notice three things here. First of all, the priest has particular clothing that he is to wear when he is in the service of the sanctuary. This is why I'm not a priest. I wear stuff that anybody else wears because I'm a pastor, not a priest. I'm an elder, not a priest. There are no priests today. There are those who are referred to as priests But biblically, there is no such thing because Jesus, the priest, the high priest, he has come and he has given himself the ultimate sacrifice once for all. There are no other sacrifices which need to be made. He alone, Paul says to Timothy, is our mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And so I don't have special clothes that I wear because I'm not functioning as a priest. You read through the New Testament, you will not find a word of a New Testament priesthood except for the priesthood of all believers. And so I just get to wear this. Not very impressive, I know. Probably wouldn't be very impressive uh, wearing something else either, but here it is. I sometimes regret that. Yeah, I think I'd like to dress up every now and then, you know, put on a robe, big flowing sleeves. But here we are. These priests had no options. God commanded them to wear Special clothing. The priestly garments had both a functional use and a symbolic use. Functionally, the dress was to be beautiful. 
and it was to cover the priest entirely. And there was a reason for this. Many priests in the pagan religions surrounding Israel ministered before their altars naked or semi-naked. And the Lord makes it very clear he wants none of that from Hebrew priests. He wants them to be completely clothed. You see the language that he is even to wear undergarments next to his flesh. He is to be entirely clothed. There is to be no hint of the pagan religion of the fertility cults around them seeping in to the worship of Israel. There is to be modesty as the priest is attired. But ultimately, that clothing symbolizes the necessity of consecration in order to carry on his priestly work. The priest is a representative of the people of God. He represents the communion of God with his people. In order to commune with God, one must be holy. In order to commune with God, one must be godly. We are made in his image, and the requirement of communion with the living God who made us is that we bear his moral image, that we reflect his holiness. And so the priest was to reflect that in what he wore. And this is something we find elsewhere in scripture as well. Uh, Turn with me to Psalm 29. Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. And if... Array is not part of your usual vocabulary. It means garment. It as a reference to how one is dressed. Now, what's the point? The point is that at one level, the priests are to come before the Lord only in the array, in the garments which God has commanded them to come. But behind that commandment for them to come before the Lord in those garments is the symbolic meaning of those garments. That is, they are, come to, to, they are to come before the Lord clothed in holiness. It is not the garment itself that is holy. It's just a thing. But it symbolizes the holiness with which we come before God. Turn with me to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3. I will give you a few extra moments to find Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. 
and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. So we see Joshua standing before the Lord, unable to fulfill his function of priestly mediation and intercession because he's clothed with filthy garments. Now, this is not Joshua from the book of Joshua. This is a later Joshua who is high priest in Israel. And he's wearing in this account filthy garments, And what do those filthy garments symbolize? They symbolize the iniquity of Israel. How does God remedy the situation? By taking away the iniquity. What symbolizes the taking away of the iniquity? It is the taking off of the filthy garments. And those filthy garments are then replaced with festal garments appropriate for a priest who is coming before the Lord. See, these priestly garments symbolize holiness, and the priest is not fit to serve unless he comes in a state of holiness symbolized by the way he dresses. Now, there are a number of applications to this, of course. In the New Testament, we're told that We are priests. I mentioned this a moment ago. The New Testament teaches the priesthood of believers, not a separate class within the church, not one given class of clergy, but rather everyone who is in Jesus Christ is a priest. Why? Because we don't need any other mediator but Jesus Christ. We can come boldly before the throne of grace into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. We don't need other mediators. And so Peter in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, says this in verses 4 and 5, Coming to him... As to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. What kind of priesthood? A holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, verse 9, but you, that he's speaking to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, look at what he says then in verse 11. In light of the fact that you are priests, you have been made a royal priesthood, therefore, what? Well, here's what he says. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, how, you, how are you to clothe yourselves as priests in this kingdom? You are to clothe yourselves with godliness. That's how you minister before the Lord as a priest under the new covenant. You clothe yourself. You are consecrated. The believer seeks godliness and then comes before the Lord. This is an Old Testament emphasis. Come back with me to Psalm 24. In Psalm 24 and verse 3, we're seeing the same thing once again. As I say, it is all through the scripture. Psalm 24 and verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. And then just come back a couple of pages. There's even a longer description of this in Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor, does, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. These things indicate the importance of the believer's holiness in relation to his communion with God. The believer is to worship God in all of life in order that his worship, when he comes into the assembly of the saints, not be hypocritical. Think of what Jesus says, Matthew 6. If you're on your way to the altar 
to offer a sacrifice. Remember, this is still under the old covenant, so there were still sacrifices being performed. If you are on your way to the altar to offer your sacrifice, and you remember that your brother has something against you, what do you do? First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then offer your sacrifice. Pursue holiness first. And then worship. Our lives are to be in harmony with our profession. If we claim to be in communion with God as we come to worship, then our lives ought to reflect that. We are not to live as if God is not the Lord. And then come to worship him as if he is. First chapter of Isaiah is the classical expression of this truth. In Isaiah chapter 1, beginning with verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. Now, this is Isaiah He's not speaking to the literal Sodom and Gomorrah. They were destroyed long, long ago. He's speaking to his own people, Israel. He's saying, you've become no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. But note what he says there in verse 11. I have had enough of burnt offerings. But the Lord commanded the burnt offerings. So what does that mean? Well, he tells you in verse 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayers, in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. The point of the passage is that the whole of our life is to be coordinate with the worship that we lift up to the living God as we assemble for worship. We're to worship God in all of life, not just when we're gathered here. But certainly when we gather together here in this place, we ought to have lived a life the previous week that harmonizes with what comes out of our mouth in this place. But of course, this godliness is not the ground of our communion with God. After all, holiness is the problem. We have no holiness of our own. 
How then is it even possible for us to enter into communion with God if that communion necessitates holiness, but we have no holiness? What then is the way of communion? And that's what we see next, back in Leviticus chapter (coughs) 6. Because the way of communion is atonement. And atonement is not something that we do. Atonement is something that God does. This is seen in God's command in regard to perpetual fire. This is the most important thing I want you to see today in this passage. This command for perpetual fire on the altar. It sets forth the truth of our continuous need for atonement and for God's gracious divine provision of that atonement. Look at verse 9 and then look at verses 12 and 13. Verse 9 says this, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law for the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. Verse 12, the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. And he shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. We're looking at six verses. Within those six verses... This command to keep the fire burning continually is repeated three times. It might be important. One reason for this is, as we're going to be told in Leviticus chapter 9, God started the fire. God started the fire on his altar. That in and of itself indicates that he provided the means necessary for sinful men to enter into communion with him. And the priest's job is to keep that fire burning. But what does that mean? Why does the fire on the altar need to continually burn? Well, it's not explained here, but Exodus 29 tells you. And this is what it says in Exodus 29, verses 38 to 42. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering with the lamb. 
The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with the same grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning for the soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak with you there. I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it shall be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now, here's what that tells us. That tells us that worship is essentially meeting with God, encountering God on the terms that he proposes, by the means that he provides. And what is the means that he provides? Here in Leviticus, it is the continual sacrifice which reminds the people of God that they have a continuous need for atonement if they are going to fellowship with God. If they are going to enjoy the benefit of his favor, there must be atonement. And this has not changed. Apart from atonement, no one may enter into the presence of God. He has provided that atonement, however. So the holy God, who will judge sin, has provided a way for that sin to be forgiven. And that, of course, is through Jesus Christ, his Son, the one true sacrifice. Through Jesus, God has provided the way that his people can enter into his presence, which is why when Jesus was on the cross, the veil in the temple covering the Holy of Holies was rent from top to bottom to tell us that things have changed. It's no longer the high priest entering into that place once a year on behalf of the people. Now the door is wide open. We are the priesthood who have gained entry into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. You may have heard the story of the little Jewish boy who was talking to his father who was a rabbi. And the boy boy has been reading the scripture and he's been listening to his father teach in the synagogue and something is bothering him. And so he goes to his father and he asks his father, Father, why don't we offer sacrifices in the synagogue? How are sins forgiven? And the father explains To his son that sins are forgiven only by blood sacrifice. And those sacrifices cannot be performed in the synagogue. But only in the temple which no longer exists. And so the son then follows up asking the logical question. Father if we do not perform blood sacrifices. How then are sins forgiven? And it is that question. 
for which the Father has no answer. There is no answer to that question. There is no sacrifice of blood. Where then is atonement? The reality is that atonement is not in the blood of bulls and goats. True atonement in all of its fullness is ultimately in Jesus Christ. And that point is being brought to bear here in Leviticus 6 by way of foreshadowing. Hebrews 10 says this, speaking about Leviticus 6, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year which they offer continually make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, Would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And then the author says there in verse 10, by this, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus fulfills the picture. Jesus fulfills the picture of this burnt offering by offering the sacrifice that provides the basis for eternal communion with God. Since the way into the enjoyment of God's presence is atonement, that atonement had to be made perpetually in the Old Testament, both to remind us of it and and to point to the provision of it, but because of of Christ's real, once-for-all atoning sacrifice, no offering remains necessary. It has been done once for all. It is complete. We who are in Christ have been reconciled to God because of the one offering of Jesus Christ. Communion with God requires atonement. And that atonement has been offered by Jesus. And so the basis for our enjoyment of the ultimate goal of redemption which is communion and fellowship with God, has already been provided and does not need to happen again. Indeed, it cannot happen again. And so through Jesus Christ, the believer comes with confidence before the Lord, not on the basis of a repeated sacrifice of animal blood, but on the basis of the sacrifice made once for all by the Son of God who was given for that purpose. And if anyone now will come to him, will turn from their sin and put their trust in Jesus and his atoning work, they will be reconciled to God. They will be accepted into the presence of God. 
And they will have communion with God. If you have never done that, then for you, today is the day of salvation. For you, today is that opportunity. And you know not whether you will have another. The gospel of the grace of God through Jesus Christ is offered to you today. Turn from your sin in repentance and trust in Jesus Christ and his atoning work. And the promise of this gracious God is that he will receive you. Your sin will be cast as far as the east is from the west and you will be adopted as his child and welcomed into his presence. Do that today. Father, thank you for the atoning work of the Savior. Thank you for the salvation which is ours in Christ. Thank you, Father, that there need be no longer animal sacrifices, but Jesus has sacrificed himself once for all. And it is in that sacrifice that we find our salvation. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.